This whole birth thing has gotten very real this week for me. <laughs> uh, we have our first grandchild, Emma Joy. Yes! Uh, Blake and Allie uh, delivered Emma Joy at a, a wonderful 5 a.m. Thursday morning. We were up bright and early. And uh, they're all doing great and uh, at home and, and settling in. So uh, I've been feeling a lot of joy around that. But I'll tell you something else that's done for me as I've been studying and we're in the birth narratives of Luke. And it, it's so familiar, right? We know these stories. We've heard them perhaps hundreds of times and it can be very academic and we can forget what's it really like to be sitting in the waiting room knowing that we live in a broken world and that things don't always go like we want them to go. There's a lot of anticipation and fear and excitement and all that wrapped together and, and I want you to know that was really happening with Mary and Elizabeth and everybody else that was connected with the story we're looking at today. That is so helpful for us to, to engage the story with all that we are, not just with our heads, not just in an intellectual kind of way, but, but think about what is going on here in the midst of this amazing entrance of our king that we just sang about. Well, beginning in verse 39, so we're in chapter 1 of Luke, and uh, we finished up through 38 last week, and beginning in 39, here's what Luke is doing. So we, we got the announcement to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we got an announcement to Mary, and now Luke is going to intertwine these two stories together because they need to go together. That's part of the, the prophetic reality. If we look back at the Old Testament and we were to look forward and go, I wonder what that's going to be like. Well, these two stories have to intersect. Jesus is the Messiah and John is his forerunner. And so their paths need to cross. And you've got Mary over in Nazareth and you've got Elizabeth down near Jerusalem in the hills of Judea and their paths need to cross. And they're going to cross today. Now, I don't want us to miss something very important about what's happening as Luke is writing his gospel. This moment right here in just this first chapter revolves almost exclusively around God's activity among two women. Now, today, maybe that's no big deal. But in the first century... If you're writing a gospel, if you're trying to get a following, you know, among uh, the folks out there in the first century Palestine, you don't start your story with women, okay? And, and you don't start your story with a priest who's struggling with belief. It's just not, it's not beginning with a lot of confidence. There's probably not a lot of people that go, I want to be part of that. It puts the reliability 
and the credibility of Christianity at stake right from the beginning. Now, what's interesting, though, is Luke goes right at it. He's just telling the story as it is, but he's, he's not massaging it so that it will land really well with his culture. And it's a beautiful thing because it uh, really contradicts the whole idea of patriarchal oppression that often gets labeled uh, with Christianity. But, but in fact, what Luke does is he exalts women. He honors Women. They have a very, very important place in this story, certainly here. And then when we get to the resurrection, guess who the first is at the tomb? Women. So I love that about how Luke is um, inviting us into this story. Uh, Mary and Elizabeth, as I hoped you picked up on the last couple of weeks, they are socially inferior. Their culture does think less of them. But Luke is highlighting their profound character, their humility, their wisdom. Like he is helping us see the real depth of these women. And uh, they are honored and elevated as a result. Luke actually portrays both of them, but especially Mary, as model disciples even before the arrival of Christ. We ought to be looking at Mary saying, I want to live like her. I want to be like her. I want to have that kind of faith. I want to have that kind of boldness and courage to live that way. We read last week at the end of this previous segment in verse 38, Mary's bold statement in response to Gabriel. And what he said was going to happen. She said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, again, let's get real here. Think about all that's going on in Mary's heart and life, her circumstances, her surroundings, her family Everything about her, we're going to look a little more at that later, but she just absolutely abandons herself to God. I want a life like Mary's, and I bet you do too. She has, what, what is point one in your outline, a real contentment with God's calling. And don't we all struggle with that to some degree? Don't we have some idea about the way life ought to be, the way we'd like it to go, who we'd like to be, where we'd like to go, all that we'd love to do, how we would love for people to think about us. And then there's God's calling on our life, which may be hard, may be confusing, may be intimidating, overwhelming. And yet this contentment idea says, let it be done to me according to your word, your will. I'll be happy with that. I thought also of our portrait of a connected life. You know, we, we say the Christian life is a connected life. And I don't think you have that kind of heart of contentment unless you have been connecting upward with God. 
outward with his mission, backward with your story, withward with the body, and inward with your gifting. All around the gospel, that, that connected life, if, if you're connecting in all of those ways, I think you're able to really rest in whatever it is God is calling you to be and do. Now, especially here when she surrenders herself to whatever it is the will of the Lord might be, that seems outward to me. Because it's not just about her little life or her little town. It, it's literally about all of history. Her doing what she is doing has implications for all of humanity, including you and me. Chuck Swindoll says this, while not understanding all the particulars, she responded with immediate belief, complete submission, and total trust in her Lord. Here's the key. Mary chose to set aside her own dreams of a normal life to accept the complications of obedience. Man, think about that for a while. Are you and I so content with the will of God that we would set aside our dreams of a normal life and embrace the complications of obedience? We would all do well to strive for a life like Mary's. So picking up last week, we've got Gabriel visiting Mary giving her an announcement that would have blown any of us away. She is literally going to carry the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind. And she's not supposed to be afraid about that. You can do it, Mary. God's going to be with you. And Mary's response is she's all in. She's a servant of the Lord. And then she does... What is another great move on her part and a great example for us? She runs for community. Look at verse 39. In those days, so speaking of right after this announcement was made, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, she's going there to see her relative Elizabeth. And remember, Gabriel mentioned to her that Elizabeth, though she is past uh, her uh, natural ability to bear children, she's going to have a child. And um, that was a miraculous provision of God and would actually serve as a sign for Mary as she was trying to kind of figure out what was happening with her. So she immediately picks up with haste. There's urgency here. And she heads for the hills, literally, to go see her relative Mary. Now, she's in Nazareth. And the, the region here that's being described is around Jerusalem. So that's about a 70-mile trip. And this isn't just hop in the car and basically spend about an hour on the road. This is a four-day journey. She's a teenager. Her parents aren't mentioned anywhere. She just picks up and heads out. She hits the road to see her relative Elizabeth. 
We're not told why she goes there. So it, it, there's a lot of speculation, but if I am thinking, I'm going, okay, she, she really is a teenager. Even though she's seen an angel and she's got a lot ahead of her, um, she must have been mature for her age. But um, do you think she might have wanted to be around someone with some wisdom and experience? I mean, Elizabeth is the wife of a priest. She's been around the temple her whole life. She's in the lineage of Aaron. Do you think there was something in her? I'm sure curious about the sign of a miraculous conception with her and Zechariah, but, but wouldn't it have been nice for her to be around family, to be around some familiarity, to try and sort out what in the world was happening to her? Community. She has a healthy longing for community. And what she gets from that, when she gets there, as we're going to see in a moment, is confirmation. And that's really one of the things. It's not the only thing, but it's one of the things that community gives all of us. See, if we're just left to ourselves, we can think or believe anything. We can become utterly deceived and lost in the midst of life. But when we're around each other and we rehearse what's right and true, and when we do share with one another our struggles and our doubts and our fears and our failures, we, we get the gospel confirmed with each other. We're reminded of what's true. We're uh, lavished with grace in those places where we struggle. So I have a hunch that she is connecting withward with the body. Again, back to the portrait. She understands that following Christ, though that's not a reality for her yet, but, but following God, that's a connected life. And what better place for her to connect than with this godly older woman? I, I know you guys probably are tired of me reminding you of this, but remember the traveling companions idea, the, the Paul, Barnabas, Timothy, and Nicodemus that I've been encouraging you to, to try and fill out, like put some names in those boxes. Well, here we are again, a teenage girl who's looking for community, connection, probably some wisdom. And where does she go but to Elizabeth? It's a great model for us as we think about living this life. Well, when Mary arrives, we pick up in verse 40. She enters the house of Zechariah and she greeted Elizabeth. Just as a side note, it's interesting to me. I, I don't want to say a whole lot about it because who knows, but this idea of greeting happens again and again and again. Angels are greeting people. People are greeting one another. Uh, an interesting relational dynamic there. But verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to see me. I don't know that 
Mary really said much to her other than, Hey, Elizabeth, it's me, Mary. Verse 44, Elizabeth continues, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she, speaking of Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth seems to know a whole lot about stuff here without being told, except perhaps by the Holy Spirit. This moment, and, and as, as I think about community, this reminds me of one of those situations. You've probably had them with a dear friend, and it's just one of those moments you'll never forget. You'll get together 20 years later, and I, I actually had a dear friend of mine. I've known him since second grade. He was in town earlier this last week. We literally grew up together. We were college roommates, and I'm telling you, we were sharing some stories going back and thinking about these crazy things that happened to us, that we did, that we experienced, those memorable moments. I think this is one of those moments. Mary just greets Elizabeth and then the fireworks begin. Elizabeth notices she's six months pregnant at this point and the baby literally, the, the word there is like leaping, like getting off the ground. So that must have been quite a shock to her. One commentator says, John begins his ministry as forerunner in the womb. Right? He recognizes this is, this is the Messiah. He doesn't know me and I don't know him, but I get it. He's here. Amazing. And then Elizabeth, it says she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And that idea of filling there is is more of an Old Testament idea. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit would be given to certain individuals according to will, the will of God for them to do something in particular. And there's all kinds of uh, assignments that people would have been given. But here it seems like the Holy Spirit is given to Elizabeth so, she, so that she might prophetically speak of blessing related to not only Mary, but to the larger entrance of this child. Now, so three times you see the word blessed. Blessed are you among women, speaking of Mary. Then blessed is the fruit of your womb, speaking of Jesus. And then down in verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Now, here's a little Bible study methods thing. When you and I are reading through our Bibles, any text, anywhere, and we see repeated words that ought to get our attention, there's something important here about blessing. Certainly, the, the big idea is that God is the giver of blessing. We don't generate that for ourselves. We don't pull that together, achieve it, accomplish it, merit it. We are just blessed by the Lord. By the way, that also will produce joy in our lives as we interact with him. But those, you see it three times there in the English, but those are actually two different words. So just as a little tip when you're studying your Bible, that's where it's helpful to get maybe a commentary or a Bible dictionary or something, not so that you can be some kind of academic student, but 
so that you can understand what's happening here. Those first two references of blessing related to Mary and Jesus are really about declaring them as subjects of blessing. Like they have been blessed by God. And at this point, keep in mind, Elizabeth doesn't know that the Messiah is God. She just understands he's the Messiah, as we'll see. She refers to him as the Lord. The second reference there about Mary being blessed, having believed, that's the experience of blessing similar to like Psalm 1 uh, or the Beatitudes. That's the idea there is that you will have an experience of blessing, not that you have received, but that you feel that you will understand and rejoice in your blessing. Notice Elizabeth's humility after declaring that blessing. And, and there's an interesting reversal here. Um, Elizabeth is much older than Mary. So she would have been her superior, not in a condescending sort of way, just in a very realistic sort of way. And yet look at her condescend here. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So she recognizes this child is the Messiah. She knows her Old Testament. She knows what has been prophesied. She probably never would have guessed it would have been sweet little Mary. But here she is. And she knows because of the Holy Spirit that this is the Messiah and she is overcome with humility. She's not rivaling over the fact that she's pregnant and she was pregnant first. And I wonder how my son is gonna measure up to her son. She's recognizing that there is a divine order taking place here and that her son is going to be beneath the son that Mary is carrying. Pretty interesting to see all of this playing out. Luke is laying a foundation. Now, I want to speak for just a moment because of these very significant words that Elizabeth declares to Mary in terms of blessing and that she's the mother of the Lord. That raises some questions around what I'm going to call the excessive veneration of Mary within Catholicism. And I don't say this to be uh, mean-spirited. Um, I don't say this to be divisive. Uh, I simply want to point out that how we interpret these kinds of statements really matter. And where we ultimately land with our understanding of what Elizabeth is saying, it really matters. Here's a representative from uh, the Catholic Church who says... The church fathers, so as they look back, they see Mary not merely as passively engaged by God, but as freely cooperating in the work of man's salvation through faith and obedience. For as St. Irenaeus says, one of the church fathers, she being obedient, catch this, became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. Veneration means exaltation or honor. 
but it's, it's raised to a level of worship. In the Catholic Church, there are four dogmas, doctrine-like, that you would be expected to embrace related to Mary, all of these established by popes over the course of history. And here they are. Immaculate Conception. That is the belief that Mary was born free of original sin at conception. That though she was born of two earthly parents, she was immediately in the moment of conception that she was rid of all sin that would have been passed down from Adam and Eve. She is considered the mother of God directly from this passage. But that doesn't just mean that she literally carried the Lord. It means that somehow she was instrumental in the Lord being who he was and particularly his sinlessness. See, she has to be immaculately conceived in order to pass that on with the help of the Holy Spirit to the Christ child. Number three, perpetual virginity which is the idea of having never been sexually intimate with a man. Um, there are some problems there, um, specifically Matthew one twenty five, where it talks about Joseph um, taking his wife, but knowing her not until she had given birth. That is a specific reference to sexual intimacy. And all of these are explained away and have been established by Papa papal authority, the, the Pope, but um, nevertheless, there's some, there's some struggles there. Lastly, the assumption of Mary is the fourth dogma, and that is the idea that she was assumed body and soul into heaven at the end of her life. There's no reference to whether she literally died or not, but that she was taken up much like Elijah was. Um, we reject all four of these dogmas. And um, what's unfortunate is, and Jeff mentioned this just in passing last week, but um, w- there's a real struggle around, so how much should we exalt this woman? And I would say we should exalt her in an enormous way, short of being different than any of us. That she was born sinful, She's going to say in a moment in need of a savior. And uh, she just happened to be the vessel that God chose to deliver the Messiah. And so she should be honored for that, but not necessarily set apart from anyone else. Here's another concerning quote that I want to share with you from Pope Benedict XV. This was written in 1918. To such an extent did Mary suffer and almost die with her suffering and dying son. To such extent did she surrender her maternal rights over her son for man's salvation and immolated him insofar as she could in order to appease the justice of God that we might rightly say she redeemed the human race together with Christ. That's a big deal, you guys. Mary is in no way ever described in our Bible as our Savior. And she is in no position to do anything for us 
that we literally couldn't do for each other, just in terms of living the Christian life, praying for one another, supporting one another, doing all that. She doesn't have some kind of special access to God and Christ because of her earthly relationship. And the rub is this. All four of these dogmas are established by popes. And here's the the statement that we ought to really take notice of. If the position of the Catholic Church is true, if these four dogmas are true, this is from a Catholic perspective, then the notion of sola scriptura, scripture alone as an authority, is false. So that's where we are as we come to this story. I'm not trying to do a little academic lesson here. I'm saying that how we interpret this text, the conclusions that we draw about Mary and Christ and salvation as it relates to us, very, very important. So we reject these dogmas, but we hold Mary in the highest regard. As I've titled this message, we want a life like Mary's. We want to believe like her. We want to obey like her. We want to walk out this life, regardless of circumstances, like her. She's a terrific model, a model disciple. Um, She's now going to model for us, having received these accolades of blessing, look at where she goes. She doesn't point to herself We come to this song called the Magnificat. You've probably sung it before. But she points all of the attention back to her God, where she ought to be pointing. Uh, Commentator Leon Morris calls this little passage an outburst of praise, largely in Old Testament language. Uh, Joel Green says it's a virtual collage of biblical texts. And I really love that because these aren't just Mary's inspired thoughts about God and salvation and all of that kind of stuff. She's literally piecing together biblical scripture all to help explain the significance of what God is doing in his redemptive plan. It's actually, and this is kind of interesting, you know when Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit being led by the Spirit, listen to how he describes what that looks like. This is in Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that look like, Paul? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your, uh, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's my question. This is the question I thought for me. I claim to be indwelt by the Spirit as a child of God. I claim to be filled or led by the Spirit in terms of like, that's my intention. But if you were around me, Would you see that kind of evidence? Specifically, would you hear God's word from me just as a way of life? Have you guys heard of Jesus juking? You heard of that? 
Sort of like somebody says something or does something and you just kind of drop a scripture on them. I get it. That's not cool. And it's pretty insensitive. But here's what's happened. We're so afraid of a Jesus juke that we just won't say anything about Jesus. We're, we're so scared to remind each other of what the Bible says is true. Why do we do that? Like That's the best thing in the world any of us could hear. Especially when we're dealing with the realities of life. So, Mary gets these incredible words of encouragement from Elizabeth. And her response is scripture. And I think what we get here is what she's modeling for us as well. Confidence in God's character. And this isn't just like cross your fingers and hope for the best kind of confidence. This is rooted in the historical redemptive plan of God. So let's look at this amazing song beginning in verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Keep in mind again, as she makes that first statement about magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God her Savior, remember her circumstances. She's a teenager, pregnant out of wedlock, betrothed to a carpenter in a not-so-reputable town, And eventually she's going to show and people are going to ask questions. And the only answer that she has for that is an angel told me that the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow me and I was going to carry the Messiah. It's kind of hard to deal with. Like what will people say? What will people think? And yet she is full of joy consumed with the goodness of God that she has received. Pick up again in verse 50. His mercy isn't only for Mary. It's for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We're going to see here that um, Luke, Luke is including this song and Mary's song is essentially giving us a template for the entire gospel. We're going to see the strong presence of God coming in for those who cannot speak for themselves, protect themselves, provide for themselves. John Piper calls this picture of God the lover of the lowly. And that's what Luke's gospel is all about, the lover of the lowly. Notice eight times uh, she uses the phrase, he has, and then fills in the blank. So there's a a significant uh, focus on the activity of God, but the way that it's written gives the idea that it's already completed. But it isn't. Like they're still living in a broken world and there's still 
poverty and sickness and struggle and oppression, all of that is still going on, and yet she sings about it as if it's done. Perhaps that's the certainty that Luke wanted Theophilus to have. Remember he said, I'm writing this to you that you might be certain. Mary is helping provide some certainty for that. Lastly, she celebrates God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. Remember, it's been 400 years since God spoke to his people, and now he is announcing a Messiah and a forerunner, which sets everything in motion for God to do for humanity what they could not do for themselves. Well, the story, this segment of the story concludes with another little traveling note. Not a whole lot there, except that it closes the book on this little interaction between Mary and Elizabeth and ushers us into um, the birth of Christ. But um, it says, Mary, in verse 56, remained with Elizabeth for about three months and returned to her home. In my mind, I thought she's returning home, but she's actually going outward with the mission. Her home was the mission. This was actually a little bit of a retreat for her to sort out, confirm, establish those things that God was doing in her life. And now it's going to get real. She's going to go back home. She's going to have to face Joseph. She's going to have to face her family. She's going to have to face her community, but she is well grounded in the goodness of God. And so she can do that. So, as you look at this model disciple, how might your life look more like Mary's? Do you have that sense of contentment? about God's call. Maybe you lack some clarity about that. That might be a great place for you to focus even during this holiday as you get maybe a little time off work, a little, little more free time, maybe. Um, you could think about contentment. Maybe there's some confirmation in community that you would really benefit from. Maybe you could initiate, reach out to some folks that you know. Um, maybe you could set out on a, a real intent to take in God's word, maybe in a fresh way with some great intentionality so that you can gain confidence in God's character with his word. Take a moment and ask the Lord to give you some direction about how to apply uh, the passage that we've studied today. Take a moment.